Please be seated. <clears throat> There's a very serious question that we must consistently ask ourselves as a local church family. It's a demanding question, and it's one that many Christian churches rarely consider, it would seem. That question is this, is Eden Baptist Church walking in a manner that is worthy of our calling? Are we living in relationship to one another in our world in a way that is worthy of the kingdom of God? The kingdom of which we are citizens. Are we worthy of our calling as those redeemed by Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Prior to the mid-1800s, research historians claim that this question was paramount for Bible-believing church members. In large measure, they energetically sought to align their lives together so as to display the glories of the new life in Christ. This was all important. Are we walking worthy? But following the Civil War, church historians describe a decided shift in the orientation of church-going Christians in the United States. We won't take time today to describe some of the reasons for that, if we can even identify all of them. But from that time forward, emphasis shifted away from actively striving to live in a manner worthy of God's calling toward an emphasis on matters such as efficiency in ministry, social involvement in the community, financial and numerical success, and the like. Now more recent days, seeker-sensitive church growth philosophy has virtually programmed churchgoers to concentrate on these types of questions. Not the question, are we walking worthy as a church, as all-important, but questions such as this, individually, does the church meet my needs? Do I like the sermons? And does the music appeal to my tastes? Do the pastors have a pleasing personality? It's not why any of you are here, I realize. <laughs> Is the church growing numerically and financially? Are there programs and peer groups fitted to my family? Is the church doing positive things in the community? Is there a good feeling between the two entities? Do I feel good when I'm there? Do I feel comfortable in the services? As we take up the Apostle Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians today, and I invite you to make your way there in your Bibles, it's quite evident in this first chapter that we must learn to think in different terms. We must learn to concentrate on living together in a manner that is worthy of our calling, actively relating to one another and our world in a way that makes it clear that we have been redeemed by Christ out of this world, that we are being transformed by the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, and that we are purposefully living our lives together so as to bring glory to God. That's why we're together. That's what matters to us. That's the question we're asking. Now in, these first, in this first chapter, we will find three specific qualities in the Thessalonian church that indicated to Paul that they were striving as a church to walk worthy of God's kingdom. This is his interest in them. This is their experience, and he commends that to us. But before we consider these three characteristics, we 
enter first of all into the formal greeting from the evangelists in verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a month of sermons right there in those two verses, but we will not look at them with any depth today. But remembering in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul, Silvanus, also called Silas, and Timothy, were used by God to bring the gospel to Thessalonica, northern Greece. They preached the gospel, if you remember that account, for three consecutive Sabbaths in the Jewish synagogue, and there was a tremendous response. Now he writes to them saying, May the grace of the Lord be with you. May peace from God be with you. Our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. They had come to embrace the gospel of Christ. But remember that persecution forced them out of the synagogue. They continued their ministry for a short time, it would see. We have to read between the lines a little bit, but it seems that there may have been a period there of several weeks further where they were able to deepen the believers in the faith, but Much sooner than they had hoped, they were driven from the city in persecution. Remember what that leaves behind. New believers, without the guidance of this evangelistic team, and they are facing severe persecution. Will their faith stand? Paul and his team make their way due south to the city of Corinth. But as he goes, his concern for the Thessalonian church just continues to grow. And at great personal cost, he dispatches Timothy back north to Thessalonica to see if the church is standing for Christ. Was this genuine faith that will endure under this intense persecution? Or was this just the initial response to faith that was not really real? And as persecution swept in, it was crushed. A false faith or a real faith. Paul celebrates here the vibrant spiritual life of the Thessalonian believers in this book and in the first epistle when Timothy returns and says the church is standing for Christ. Paul is thrilled. He rejoices. He writes the first book. The second book comes not long after. In fact, he's still in Corinth as he writes it. But just continuing to seek to nurture their faith in Christ and rejoicing in what he's seeing, that under these severe pressures, their faith is holding firm. Paul is thrilled, and he seeks to continue to deepen them in the faith. We come then to these three key characteristics that emerge from this correspondence, helping us to see what it is to be a church that walks in a manner worthy of the kingdom of God as they are. The first characteristic we find, the first two in fact, in verse 3. The first being a growing faith. Verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly. There's the characteristic that he sees and in in which he rejoices. This growing faith. But before we think on that for a moment longer, let's notice first of all the necessity that Paul feels to thank God for the Thessalonian believers. As evidence mounted that they were indeed growing in the faith, Paul recognized that the only honorable response for him was to rejoice, to give thanks to God for what he was doing to deepen them in their faith. I wonder, do we look for that in one another? 
Do we see each other in that light? Is that how we orient our lives? It is so natural to detect what is not right in one another, isn't it? It's easy to criticize someone. It's easy to grumble against others, to ignore other members of the church. What we should do is to habitually look for evidences of genuine faith in one another and then thank God for what He is doing to transform His people. By the power of His Spirit, by means of suffering, trial, and difficulty, by feeding us His sanctifying Word, God is in the business of growing the faith of His people. Do we see that? Do we look for that? Do we see what He is doing and do we rejoice in what He is doing? It's a grave danger here for us. I may be grumbling about, complaining against, looking down upon, or simply ignoring believers in my church family whom God is actively changing. If that's the case, then I'm, I have a different agenda than God has. And I'm not bringing glory and honor to Him as He works to change people. I should be looking for what God is doing in people's lives. I should be seeking for growing faith and giving thanks to the Lord for it. And that's exactly what Paul does here. He rejoices in the knowledge that their faith is growing abundantly. He gives thanks to God for that. That's not something that human beings can generate. It's an evidence that Christ has saved these people because their faith is growing Growing faith matters. When you look around and see people trusting God and rejoicing in Him as they face trials of various kinds, as they face deep heartaches, then you see this is a real church. This is a place where God is deepening faith through trials and suffering. When you look around and you see people trusting God's Word against the false doctrines of this world, That should be a cause of thanksgiving to God. Here is someone who sees the truth and embraces it. It's an evidence of God's genuine work in their life. I give thanks. We're not in the minority here. Or we're not in the majority here. We're in the minority. There are those who see the truth of God. Give God thanks for that growing faith and dependence upon His Word. When we look around and see people trusting God as they fight for holiness and resistance to the world, the flesh, and the devil... That is something to celebrate. I see the battle against sin. I see a dependence upon God's Word. I see here people that are rejoicing in God in the midst of trial. All of that is an evidence of a growing faith. What must God think when He's actively changing people through these means? And all we do is complain about them or sleep unaware of what they're facing, how they're growing, how they're changing, zeroing in on our own selfish agenda, thinking simply, how does the church meet my needs? And not seeing what God is doing to grow faith. We need to be looking into one another's lives and seeing this growth, this change, because God's doing it. As weak, as sinful as we are, He's active, and there is growing faith that is evidenced all the time. Do we see it? Do we give God thanks for it? Do we genuinely rejoice that we walk in such an assembly where faith is alive? The second characteristic we find in verse 3 is an increasing love. 
Middle of verse 3, And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. This is why he gives thanks. The growth of their faith, the increase of their love for one another. Are we walking worthy of our calling as a local church family? That has something to do genuinely with our statement of purpose, with our doctrinal statement, with these, our covenant and these very important documents of our church. That's undoubtedly very important as to whether a church is walking in a manner worthy of Christ as they take a position in these areas. But you see the proof here he's rejoicing in is that they love each other more and more. The increase of their love is what is really the evidence that they're walking in a manner that is worthy. The proof is not in the efficiency of our ministry. It's not in the documents that we present. The proof is not in numerical or financial growth. The proof is not that everything we do or every ministry that we undertake meets every need or pleases every member. The proof is found in the fact that we relate to one another in love and that our love is increasing for each other. Not that we increasingly like one another necessarily, that's a wonderful thing, but that we are genuinely striving to love one another in increasing ways. So I think we all must ask, am I growing increasingly distant from other believers? Am I holding them off at arm's length? Are you tracking toward the realm of disconnectedness and disinterest in God's people? Or are you tracking more and more to to love, to meet people where they are, to rejoice in what God's doing? Maybe you're just a lot busier than you once were. Maybe you're struggling with bitterness towards someone or toward the church as a whole. Maybe your spiritual life is in a downward trend. There's many causes, but we need to take careful note. Walking in a manner worthy of God's kingdom is evidenced by our love increasing for the members of our church. Is your love increasing for one another? Is my love increasing for you? This is something that I need to ask, and it's an active pursuit that I need to make. We're going to give any credence to Scripture. We're going to take the Apostle Paul at face value here from what he's saying. Increasing love for one another is an evidence of walking worthy of Christ. A decreasing love, a distance, a coldness, a disinterest is an evidence that I'm not walking worthy of Christ. We need to turn our active focus on this. Loving others requires hard work. And it doesn't necessarily get easier the longer that you come to know them. It's a daily decision, and it's a work that takes effort and focus. Particularly moving toward and increasing in love toward people that we, don't, that we naturally want to avoid. And let's admit that's the case from time to time as we relate to one another. Many years ago, I remember facing some rough times with a member of our church, and he just had a way of making life difficult for me, and it was, it was a hard relationship, and I struggled with wanting to avoid him. That was what was so natural. And I remember one Wednesday night, we were breaking up for prayer among the men, and I just had in my heart, I do not want to be near him. 
And I knew that wasn't right. I knew it wasn't good. And I said, I'm going to purposefully pray with this man. To this day, many years later, I still remember what took place in that prayer meeting. A, a binding of hearts in prayer. A sense in my mind is, here is this man who has the we have a hard time relating Here's a man who loves the same Lord that I love. That has the same desires that I have. And I learned something just experientially in that event. How important it is for us to move toward one another. Particularly when we want to move away. When I want to avoid. When I don't want to move toward someone. That's when I need to move toward them. It is amazing what can happen when we simply converse with one another. And what can happen when we pray with one another. Our natural response so often is to move away. We need to learn to move toward. To increase in our love will take effort and work. But it's worth every effort. As I look at your life, says the Apostle Paul, I rejoice that you're alive. You're vibrant because your faith is growing. Your love for one another is increasing. As we come to verse 4, he's going to give some specific results. It introduces a specific consequence of their faith and love, which I think in a sense becomes, in essence, a third characteristic of a worthy church member. So in a sense, it just summarizes their faith and love, but it, it almost stands as a third characteristic. We'll take it that way, realizing that they all interrelate. But he says in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. Why is he boasting about them? Because of their growing faith and increasing love. For, this is how he defines it, your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Persecutions, specific attacks because of their stand for Christ. Afflictions, a general term. The trials of life, but in their situation, particularly related to their persecutions. I rejoice in this steadfast endurance, a growing faith and increasing love for one another, the steadfast endurance that you face under persecution. Now this verse really gets into the harsh reality of their daily lives. Thessalonica was not a warm environment for Christians. They were facing stiff persecution. They were facing trials of many kinds. But they remained loyal to God under the pressure of this severe adversity. And Paul gives thanks. Because withstanding persecution was evidence of the genuineness of their faith. So Paul gives thanks. Not only that, not only does he thank God, he boasts about them in the other churches. He says, have you heard about the believers at Thessalonica? Have you heard about this church they are facing intense persecution, and yet their faith is standing. It's holding up under this persecution. The Thessalonians have become a model for other churches to follow, including us in this regard. Are we walking in a manner worthy of our calling? One of the evidences is a faith that grows, a love that increases for one another, and an endurance under trial. It's that kind of faith. There's a lot of rabbit's foot Christians. They see God as just rubbing a rabbit's foot. If I will be close to God and I will devote my life to God, I'll get what I want. Now, they might not say it that way, but that's really how it goes because when the trials come, they get bitter against God. 
against his people. It's an evidence that God is really seen as a means to what they really want. But when everything that you want is taken away, and you still trust the Lord, now that's real faith. That's faith that's enduring. Paul rejoices to see that in them. At this point, beginning at verse 5, he takes now another trail off the main road of his discussion and considers the theme of persecution at some length. So this endurance under persecution is crucial. Now he's going to talk about that persecution at verse 5. and We have a paragraph break here, which we really shouldn't have. It's connected very directly to verse 4. But he says, this is evidence. What's this? Like all of this. All that you're facing, your, your, your faith, your growing love for one another, your endurance in persecution, all of this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, we're afflicted as well. He'll give relief. When's that going to happen? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Let's summarize that. See if we have it. Because they're trusting in and loyal to Jesus Christ, They're facing persecution. People hate them and want to stop them. Right now then, their persecutors are in charge. They're winning. But the persecution of the Thessalonian believers is also providing strong evidence that they are on God's side, that their faith is genuine. As a righteous judge then, God will set all things right in the end. They can have assurance of this. As one commentator puts it, God is all about just outcomes. He is because He's righteous, because He's just. You need to place your faith in this and trust in this. Yes, you're facing severe trial and persecution, but God is all about just outcomes. Be patient, hope, wait, trust. So those who are now persecuting the believers are actually resisting God And God will reverse that situation in time. Those inflicting suffering on the believers in the present will face the punishment of God in the future. Right now, God is being patient with the unrighteous. That day will come to an end. Remember this. Don't forget it. Those then who are presently suffering on the other side of the coin will gain relief when God finally rescues His people. When is that going to take place? Verse 7 says again, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. Some would take this to be a reference to His return and that the judgment comes in the tribulation. Others would take this to refer to the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation when that judgment falls. He comes, as verse 8 says, in flaming fire. The qualifying phrase, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus makes it clear that He comes in judgment. He comes to set things right. This is just, and so in a world run by God, it is inevitable. 
This day needs to come. This day needs to come. And we, we have such a little sense of it here because we don't face such intense persecution. But the church is facing it. We've been very troubled by what's taking place in Iraq over these last few years. Recently, two Christian men were murdered in the city of Kirkuk in an attempt by Muslims to intimidate the Christians of that region. One Christian that lives in that area told Asian News this, I quote, the attacks on Christians continue. And the world remains totally silent. It is as if we've been swallowed up by the night. That dark night will come to an end for persecuted believers. But there is something that we can touch there in this man's statement. It is as if we've been swallowed up by the night and forgotten. There's a sense there of the discouragement of the trial, of the severity of having to stand for Christ, possibly at the cost of your life. But a day will come when the darkness will be swallowed up by the glory of the returning Christ. In light of that pending judgment, Paul takes another step off this trail as he's talked now about their persecution, about how God will bring justice to bear, he takes another step off as he investigates then the destiny of those who are the persecutors, who are resisting God by harming His people. Verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Let's wake up as we read that verse. Wow, I mean that's sobering one of the most sobering, heart-wrenching verses in the Bible. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction. First of all, this destruction is eternal because our spirits are from God and thus eternal. They cannot be annihilated. It's impossible for a spirit that comes from God who is eternal to cease to exist. And Scripture does not so much as hint at the notion of annihilation. It is eternal destruction never ending destruction secondly this eternal destruction is destruction primarily because it is suffering away from the presence of the lord who is the source of every good gift we know that god alone is and we sense then that he is pouring out his grace and his patience and his goodness every day upon everyone anyone who lives in this world from one day to the next no matter the suffering that they face, there is some measure of the grace and the goodness of God being poured out upon them. But when we reject God, when we turn away from the Gospel, there is a time when in eternity our destinies will be finalized. Those who respond to the Gospel and are saved will enter into the presence of God. Those who reject the Gospel of Christ, will enter into a Christless eternity. They will be separated from Him. If you are separated from God, then you're separated from what is good. This isn't how any Christian would design it and wants it to be and what we want to say to our neighbors and friends and family members who know not the Lord. This is what the Lord has said. 
There's a sense in which, in, in which when the sun goes down, it does not benefit. Who will suffer this destiny? Verse 8, those who do not obey the gospel. They will be swallowed up by the eternal night. We don't say this casually or lightly. We say this because it's the warning of our Lord. Who is it that will face this eternal destruction? It is, verse 8, those who do not obey the Gospel. I think that's the same as those who do not know God. They don't know Him in a real sense because they've disobeyed the Gospel. They've not responded to His saving grace. They will therefore face eternal destruction. So if that's you today, you need to be rescued from your sin. You need to be rescued from the darkness in which you live your life and which will ultimately, by which you will ultimately be swallowed up. God must save you from the penalty of your sin. Only God can save you from the penalty of your sin. You need a saving grace to be rescued from this destruction. If we take a cue from Luke 16, if you're here today separated from Christ and you enter into this Christless eternity, you will probably spend eternity blaming other people, making excuses, and in bitterness against God. But don't ever forget there was a day when the Gospel was announced, when this judgment, this warning was stated, and you today need to respond to Jesus Christ as your Savior. There is no deliverance from this destruction apart from Christ. Embrace His message of salvation today. This punishment will be suffered, verse 10, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That is, you're among those believers. So there's coming a day when the downtrodden of the earth, Christ's persecuted followers, will be vindicated. Their rescue will not only bring relief to them, it will ultimately glorify the saving might of Christ. On that day, Jesus will be marveled at. And the Thessalonian believers are guaranteed to join the revelry because they have not rejected the gospel, but believed it. And they too will marvel at Christ. A growing faith, an increasing love for one another, a steadfastness under persecution and trial. This trial will end, says Paul. I give thanks that you are walking in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. Now he turns to prayer for them. This is my communication with you. Now I want to pray for you. To this end, he says, verse 11, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. Notice the phrase, worthy of His calling. It links to verse 5. Worthy of the kingdom of God. This is His intense passion for these people to walk worthy of His calling and, his, and Christ's intense passion for Eden Baptist Church. That we would be a church that walks worthy of the calling of God. But notice here, it's God alone who can empower us to grow in our faith. And so Paul sets the example that he prays to this end. We don't just stand by and say, well, I'm waiting for somebody to show me some real faith. I'm waiting for somebody to show me some genuine love. I'm waiting for someone to show me endurance under trial. 
I don't know if I'm seeing it. Oh, I might see a little bit over there. And we just sit around and wait like judges with our arms crossed at a track meet or something. No, this is something in which we find active participation. We pray to this end. We labor before God in prayer for one another that faith would increase, that love would increase, that patient endurance would increase in our lives. And so by participating with the Spirit of God, we are bringing about through our prayers, understood in the right sense, we are bringing about through our prayers the very change we're looking for. And when you're praying for the faith of your brothers and sisters in Christ, when you're pleading with God to develop love in them, you're pleading that they would endure, you see it when it's there. Because you're asking God to produce it. And so you're rejoicing in it when it meets your eyes. This is an active endeavor for Paul. I want you to walk worthy of the kingdom of God. I'm giving thanks for what God is doing. And so I am pouring my life out in prayer that you would walk worthy and that He would produce the good in you through His power to do what you should do and to be who you should be so that what's the ultimate end for which we pray so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ by the grace of God our faith grows our love increases our endurance holds fast so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us and we glorified in our union with him This is the purpose of the church. This is why Christ saves us, to display His glories in this world so that through union with Him, we experience His glory in us. Now, we experience that glory in increasing measure, growing, maturing sanctification in the faith. Ultimately, we experience it in the transformation that comes as we are turned into the likeness of Jesus Christ at His appearance. And that's the true, and that's the true purpose of a local church. We live together as a fraternity of faith, love, and endurance, provoking one another to live in a manner that is worthy of God's kingdom, knowing one another, bringing one another forward, praying for one another. Now, understand, All of that, it's not that we're earning our salvation. We make ourselves worthy of God by the way that we live. Not at all. We're saved by grace through faith alone. But having been saved as a gift of God, we live together in such a manner that our relationship to one another serves to help us conform to the likeness of Jesus Christ. He is our ultimate example, isn't He? He is the ultimate example of living faith. He lived in utter dependence upon the Father. He said, I always do those things that please my Father. Do you? I don't. I've never said that phrase. I've never tried that on anyone. I've never been that self-deceived to say, I always do those things that please my Father. But He's my example. That's how I want to live. And I rejoice in that when we see it in other believers that there's that faith that is moving toward Christ where we live in utter dependence, always doing what pleases Him. 
He's the ultimate example of love. He poured out His life for the good of His people whom He loved to the very end in perfect self-sacrifice, willing to lay down His life. That's my example. He's the ultimate example of endurance entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly under persecution and for the joy set before Him endures even the cross. There is a tenacious loyalty to His Father to carry through any trial to the glory of Christ. That's our Savior. That's the one to whom we look. That's our pattern as a church. That's what we're about. That's the worthy walk. You contrast this. It looks so cheap, doesn't it? You contrast this with the view that church is a spiritual convenience store where I fuel up on messages that take me where I want to go and I consume whatever fancies my eyes, whatever, in whatever my eyes find some pleasure. Some people begin indeed to attend even our church with that orientation. They're wholly interested in how the church meets their needs, fits their families, satisfies their expectations. And we need to be patient with that and understand that. People live in that kind of a culture. That's what a church is. It's a spiritual convenience store. You need to poke your nose in and see if it's going to meet all my needs. That's how people, many people come oriented that way. We need to have patience and grace as we work with them. But we also need to say by the way that we live and by the orientation of our life as a church, this is not a spiritual convenience store. Here there needs to be a radical orientation to what the risen Christ is doing in this world as He saves people from their sin, as He nurtures their faith, their love, and their endurance. Christ is doing this in His people We need then to actively invest in one another's growth through knowing one another, through encouraging one another, and through laboring in prayer with one another. For whom are you praying in this church? Are you praying that your brothers and sisters in Christ would grow in faith and love and endurance? We need to actively join this work of God. And then we need to give thanks in seeing what He's doing in our lives through the transforming power of the Spirit who conforms us into the image of His Son. A growing faith in God, increasing love for one another, enduring steadfast under trial, enduring steadfastness under trial, that we may live together to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. Let's bow for prayer. I pray, Father, that these words would deepen this church. That it would deepen me. How small we are. How oriented to our own agendas. To our many small notions about church and life together. And I pray, Father, that by Your mercies You will help us to grow and to change, that this passage would arrest our attention and shake us from our selfishness, that it would shake me to the core of my being as I do labor in love, in prayer, for the faith and the love and the endurance of this church. 
God, I pray that it would grow, that our prayers would be fervent and rich and that we would then see in one another what we're praying about. Help us to this end. There may be someone here that is separated from Christ. I pray that they would see the crucifixion of Jesus and His resurrection as Your saving plan to rescue them from their self-centeredness and their sin and their rebellion against You. That they would not be disobedient to the Gospel, but would submit to You, our God and Father, embracing Christ by faith, And that the Spirit of God would baptize and wash them clean of their sin. Work to that end today, we would pray. And guide as many of us continue to discuss this passage later this afternoon and evening. May you be glorified in your church. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.